0: As we stand, let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And as we continue in our series on Paul's letter to the Philippians, I pray that you would give us fresh insights, fresh understandings, and that you would help us by the power of your spirit to receive from you today that which you may have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. British understatement if I may be indulged in saying so is perhaps one of our more endearing qualities uh, let me give you just a few examples of what I mean uh, when a Brit says that someone did something that was not very clever what he really means is that someone just displayed unforgivably stupid misjudgment and if someone is not terribly friendly what is really meant is that such a one has just committed an act of abominable cruelty. A bit of a nuisance might be described; it uh, might be used to describe a debilitating and painful chronic illness. And if a Brit says of something that has just happened to her, well, it's not exactly what I would have chosen. It, she really means it was the most horrific experience she's ever encountered in her entire life. <laughs> Some of you may have come across a posting that made its way around the internet a few years ago in a similar vein. It went like this. The British are feeling the pinch in relation to recent terrorist activities and therefore have raised their security level from miffed to peeved. (laughs) Soon, though, security levels may be raised yet again to irritated or even a bit cross. (laughs) Londoners have not been a bit cross since the Blitz in 1940 when tea supplies all but ran out well, if the art of understatement was a true indicator of one's nationality then St Paul was obviously British (laughs) let me explain, our reading this morning uh, from Philippians begins with Paul making a passing reference to what has happened to me by which he is actually referring to an extraordinary litany of false accusation, mob violence, having been stripped, beaten and tortured, of being rescued from an assassination plot, uh, surviving a horrendous journey, including being shipwrecked, and now finally being held under house arrest, awaiting trial in Rome. That's the context. But Paul's point is not how heroic he's been, or how much he has suffered, or even how he had every right to be a bit cross. But rather, that what has happened to him has actually helped to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what counts more than anything else. I suspect he has that in mind when, as as we saw last week, earlier in this chapter... He wrote of his confidence that the one who began a good work in the Christians at Philippi will indeed bring it to completion. And likewise, and and maybe many of you can do this also, but as I look back on my own life, now with some hindsight, I can see how the setbacks, roadblocks, disappointments, failures, sufferings have actually contributed to so much that is not only good in my life, but that has brought me to the place and the ministry that I now find myself in. And this, I believe, is not some sort of uh, fatalism, but rather a way of understanding our lives that is based on faith, hope, and love with God at the center of things. And while we may not know this, At the time, and while it may not always apply, I think there are times when the pressures of life are the hands of the potter, who is our Heavenly Father. Whether those pressures be brought to bear directly at his hands or through the hands of his agents. Likewise, the fires of life oftentimes are those of the refiner who loves us furiously and passionately. Well, Paul's hardships were very real in the past, they were very real in the present, and they were very real in the future. But the truth is, opposition does not derail God. He is not knocked off course when people come against those who proclaim Jesus. At the time of writing, Paul was daily living in the face of great adversity, But the main thing, as far as he was concerned, was that Christ be proclaimed. As he looks to the future, he obviously has no idea how his appeal uh, to Caesar in the courts will turn out and whether he will live or die. But of this he is certain and confident and filled with joy and hope. In verse 20, now as always in my body, whether by life or death, Christ will be exalted. All things are working towards the day when Christ will come again, whether it seems that way or not. It's striking that Paul does not describe the negative effects of the suffering on himself personally, but rather the positive effects of his chains on others. And sometimes, not always of course, but sometimes suffering can bring great fruitfulness. When Paul considers his shackles, he's not thinking primarily about how sore his wrists are, but rather about what his chains are accomplishing for the gospel. He does not view his situation as some act of divine forgetfulness. Why did God let this happen to me? Nor did he give up his mission of proclaiming Christ, because he was locked up. On the contrary, his situation... Literally gave him a captive audience every time the guards changed and a different one was chained to him. He does not say that he is a victim of the devil's attacks. Though surely he had been the recipient of all kinds of evil. But regardless he understands his circumstances as being the place where he is called to serve. Now, I don't think we should assume for a moment that adopting this kind of an attitude came easily to him. On the contrary, enduring that which he endured with joy and purpose comes only by hard-won choices and practice in the very midst of great tribulation. Paul writes in another of his letters uh, in, the, in, in Romans, uh, we boast in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Remember, Paul didn't go... uh, Well, Paul wanted to go to Rome as a preacher. And instead he winds up there as a prisoner. But that which looked like failure actually served to advance the gospel. Paul discovered, as have countless followers of Jesus since, that as in the days of Joseph in the Old Testament, that which others intended for harm, God intended for good. Well, there are three particular things that Paul says about the effects of what's happened to him, and they're all good. And each one, I think, has got some relevance for us. First, his imprisonment and suffering helped the spread of the gospel. That was both to the whole of the imperial guard, but also to other Christians who, seeing what had happened to him, were greatly encouraged. They were emboldened in their own witness to Jesus to share the gospel to others without fear. Note, Paul did not wait till he was released. It was while he was still locked up that he proclaimed Christ. You know, I I, I suspect that there are some Christians who think if only I was in a different situation, if only I had a different job, if only my life wasn't as it is, then I I could so much better and more easily share the gospel. Maybe you feel chained to a job that you hate. Maybe you are a stay-at-home parent and there are days when you feel that you're chained to the kitchen sink or to changing diapers or whatever it might be. And if you do feel chained or held back, rather than simply waiting for some better day, how might you be able to rejoice in what God is going to do despite your circumstances or even because of your circumstances? What are the opportunities that your imprisonment gives you to share Christ with others, be they your children, a co-worker, or the person you talk to when you go for a medical appointment. Well, Paul was a great inspiration to those Christians in Rome who felt chained or trapped or troubled, and to all who heard or read his letters. And his joy overflowed to them and gave them great hope and courage. And, of course, there are many people since who have also inspired others despite facing circumstances that are, well, not exactly what they would have chosen. <laughs> you know, I think of, of someone like Joni um, Eriksson-Tarda. I remember as a young boy, uh, I think I saw a video, actually, but I heard about, or a film, I heard about this story of this American girl when she was 17, diving into a shallow lake and breaking her neck, leaving her in a quadriplegic state with just some very minimal movement in her hands. And I was enormously inspired by her. And yet, you see, for that tragedy for for Johnny, like Paul's imprisonment, actually helped spread the gospel of Christ's love. And today, uh, Johnny heads up a remarkable international ministry called Johnny and Friends. That through her and her staff and her volunteers has developed a whole range of Christ-centered programs and services which help bring Jesus in very practical ways to disabled people and their families. Well, let's return to to Paul in prison. If the first good effect of the bad things that happened to him uh, was the spread of the gospel, the second good effect of his imprisonment was that Christ was preached even more. Not only did it spread out, but there were more people preaching. Even, he tells us, by those who were actually opposed to him. And we're preaching from dubious motives. Verse 15. Some proclaim Christ from envy and rivalry and selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but intending to increase my suffering in my imprisonment. But then he adds, what does it matter? Just this, that Christ is proclaimed in every way, whether out of false motives or true. And in that I rejoice. Now, it's worth noting, Paul is not saying here that the ends justify the means or that the message can be changed. He's not saying that at all. The only point he's making is that the motives of those preachers were secondary and ultimately not important. And if you think about it, you know, if you wait for your motives to be absolutely pure before you do anything, you'll be a long time not doing anything. I suspect that most of us do all sorts of things with a certain degree of mixed motives. You know, you get up in the middle of the night, perhaps, to change your baby's diaper because it's the right thing to do, even though the love that you show in doing that may be tinged with annoyance at your baby or resentment that your spouse didn't get up or feeling fed up at being woken up. But whether you're doing it out of 100% pure selfless love or whether you have a whole mix of emotions and motivations. doesn't really matter. What counts is that you're doing the right thing. Or, as a preacher, I confess that when I step into this pulpit, sometimes, often, I I have a mix of feelings and motives. I mean, I wish that I didn't, but, you know, there it is, I do. Do I want faithfully to preach God's word to you? Absolutely, yes, I do. Am I concerned for those who will listen to me? Yes, I am. But do I ever get frustrated or annoyed when I think people aren't listening or paying attention? (laughs) Sure, I do. Do do I want you to think that it was a really good sermon and and have you laugh at all my jokes and think that I'm a great preacher? Yeah, bring it on, absolutely. (laughs) But at the end of the day... Judge my preaching not on my fickle frailties as a sinful man, or for that matter, on your fickle frailties when you want to be entertained or you're distracted or whatever else, but judge the preaching on whether the one preaching has faithfully proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ. In 1971, renowned English preacher Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a book called Preaching and Preachers, and in it he wrote this. What is the chief end of preaching? I like to think it's something like this. It is to give men and women a sense of God and his presence. I can forgive a man for a bad sermon. I can forgive the preacher almost anything if he gives me a sense of God. If he gives me something for my soul. If he gives me the sense that though he is inadequate himself, he is handling something which is very great and very glorious. If he gives me some dim glimpse of the majesty and the glory of God, the love of Christ, my savior, and the magnificence of the gospel. If he does that, I'm his debtor and I'm profoundly grateful to him. And I hope that week by week, as we engage with God's word and listen to sermons, that each of us would catch a glimpse of the majesty and glory of God, of the love of Christ, our savior, And the magnificence of the gospel of grace. Well, the third way that Paul's imprisonment had a positive effect was in how it led to Christ being lifted up, to Christ being exalted. Our sufferings, our weaknesses, our mixed motives, our difficult circumstances can be the very vehicle through which others are better able to see Jesus. If you think of the many Christians throughout the ages who've given their lives for Christ through great missionary or social endeavors, oftentimes, at the time, it looked as if they were failures. Yet with hindsight, we know that their witness and work brought about tremendous transformation. Transformation. That was true of the witness of Stephen, the very first martyr, that sparked not only a terrible persecution against the church, headed up, by the way, by none other than St. Paul himself before he came to Christ, but it was also the catalyst of a huge missionary effort as those who were scattered went from place to place proclaiming and exalting Jesus. And, of course, in more recent history, I'm sure you could think of many examples We've seen the life and witness of the the Ugandan martyrs, or, or in this nation of Martin Luther King. People who lost their lives before they saw the fruit of their labors. Paul writes in verse 29, God has granted us the privilege, not only of believing in Christ, but of suffering for him as well. Now, of course, many of us don't suffer much for our faith. But whether we suffer much or little, one very practical way that we can be a help to one another is by praying for one another. I don't know if you noticed it, but there in the middle of our reading, one of the reasons that Paul was able to rejoice in the midst of his sufferings was because of the prayers of others. In verse 19, he said, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus, Christ will Turn out for my deliverance. But come what may, whether he was to live or die, Paul's number one concern was to put Jesus first. And all this is summed up in that remarkable statement that many of you will be familiar with in verse 21 For to me, living is Christ, and dying is gain. Let me ask you, how would you put that phrase? What is it to you to live? What is it to you to die? How would you fill in the blanks? For me to live is money. For me to live is getting married. For me to live is being successful. For me to live is, is what? And to die? Is it leaving everything behind? To be forgotten? To lose it all? Can you say... With Paul, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, this may sound like lofty stuff, but you know it gets lived out very much in the everyday realities of our lives at work or at home, and all the more so in the face of opposition or difficulty. Paul's charge to us at the end of this chapter is to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. Or in other words, to live as the citizens of God that we are. A parishioner once came to his rector and said, we have some neighbors who believe a false gospel. Can you recommend a book that I can give them? Well, the rector pulled out his Bible, turned to 2 Corinthians 3 and read verse 2. You are our letter written on our hearts to be known and read by all. The best book in the world is no substitute for your witness Every day, at school, at home, at CMU, at Pitt, on the bus, wherever it is that you interact with others. And if we are to be effective witnesses for Christ, we need each other. Here again, Paul's charge in verse 27. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side. With one mind for the faith of the gospel. And how are we to do that? With the help of one another. Side by side as Paul says. Through the prayers of one another. And through the power of the Holy Spirit. Finally may we with St. Paul be able to say. For to me living is Christ and dying is gain. And may we, with the help of the Spirit of Jesus, live our lives this week in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Amen.